Welcome to the Drummer's Pathway, the podcast about music, life, and the creative process. Hello, I'm Michael Scott, and welcome to the Drummer's Pathway podcast. There are unexpected moments we encounter in our lives that end up presenting us with opportunities that we choose to explore just to see what may come of these situations. Often, they may lead us down a temporary path where we can embrace and gain experiences from these moments, but sometimes these scenarios can provide us with lifetime opportunities that can lead us into situations that end up becoming career-defining. My guest today is John Bermuda Schwartz. For over four decades, John is best known as the drummer with the iconic Weird Al Yankovic. The two met while recording the parody Another One Rides the Bus at the Dr. Demento show on September 14, 1980. Shortly afterwards, Yankovic invited Schwartz to join his band, gave him the nickname Bermuda, and the two have worked together ever since. John is also the official band historian and has archived an unsurpassed collection of unique audio and video products from around the world. He is also an avid photographer, and in 2020, John published the book Black and White and Weird All Over, which features unreleased black and white photographs of Weird Al from the early 1980s. In 2022, he went on to publish the follow-up Lights, Camera, Accordion, a collection of his color film photos of Weird Al from 1981 to 2006. For our interview, we talk about the importance of maintaining a consistently high level of excellence, embracing the creative challenges that are presented to you, and always being open to maintaining another career in order to maintain a comfortable life while you work to pursue your creative endeavors. As this interview ran close to two hours, I have divided it into two episodes. So let's sit back and get started with part one of my interview with John Bermuda Schwartz. So John, you have been the drummer for Weird Al Yankovic for over four decades now. And throughout that time, you have been able to establish and maintain a successful career as a professional working musician. Looking back as a youth, you actually started out playing the accordion and your brother was the drummer. So what inspired the switch in the first place? Wow. That's, that's digging deep. Uh, yeah, I, I started on accordion before, uh, you know, I could have been a uh, weird John Yankovic, I guess. Uh, I, you know, I, I, I think my move to the drums was predicated on my brother's move to the guitar and I inherited his drums. And that seemed like uh, a much more interesting instrument to me than the accordion. And, uh, you know, I was listening to, you know, a lot of rock and roll of, of the day, you know, Beatles and, and uh, you know, Paul Revere and the Raiders and the Beach Boys and not a lot of accordion in their music. So the drums definitely appealed to me. And, uh, you know, again, there was a drum set right in the house and uh, we moved that into my room and uh, the same place that I took accordion lessons, I started taking drum lessons in uh, 1965 and, uh, and never stopped. So you started out already 
being formally trained as a drummer where many kind of spend years before they kind of look into starting the lesson process but you early on adapted to lessons so what were some of the early things that you really worked on to develop your skill set well the the uh the lessons began although i had a full drum set uh in my room uh the lessons were literally started on the snare drum and uh you know i could read music a bit but as far as the mechanics of moving sticks and uh, rudiments and things like that i mean i literally started on uh, just snare drum stuff and uh you know, although I was beginning to experiment at the house, playing along to records and things. And then gradually in, in the lesson process, uh, we introduced, I don't even think we had a bass drum in, in the room. They, he had me tap my foot. And I think he brought in a cymbal and said, okay, here, you know, you play play eighth notes on the cymbal and then a, a snare on the two and four, and you tap your foot on one, two, and three, and four. And and it was a very, uh, it was a very elementary introduction. It wasn't like, you know, today you sit down at a whole drum set, you're ready to go. Uh, it was one piece at a time. Again, even though I had a full drum set at home and was probably working on stuff on my own, uh, I I was taught rudiments and and how to do certain things and and some of the basics and uh, reading notation, of course, and and drum notation, and uh, which I think was very valuable. I mean, I still read and write music today. You know, drum music anyway. Uh, as far as melodic stuff, I still have to count up the staff. You know, I know a treble clef from a bass clef, and I know how to, you know, let's see, F-A-C-E, and then the A-C-E-G in the bass clef, you know. Uh, but uh, drum notation comes very natural to me, and and I attribute that to my first few teachers uh, back when I was, I had just turned nine, I mm -hmm. think, when I started lessons. I know for me, because I've been uh, a drum set teacher for a number of years, there's always the challenge when people come in and they always have to decide, do I really want to learn how to read drum music? And I find the younger students don't tend to question it. It's often the older students that have already been playing for a while that come in that don't feel that they're able to learn it in the first place. But my philosophy is always, you may not be in a working situation where you have to read drum music, but by understanding the notation, it changes your listening and it makes it much easier for you to analyze the songs that you want to learn in the first place because you can understand what they're doing. If I need to learn something quickly, I can listen to a song, quickly notate the things out, and it's easier for me to learn that material. And I know for you, you really subscribe to that whole approach of, of really getting the fundamentals so that it makes it easier for you to learn things in a more thorough fashion, plus also quickly. Well, it's definitely helped, uh, certainly with Al, uh, because I do have to write out parts. Uh, I mean, I have to transcribe, uh, you know, of, of the parodies we're doing, and the parodies account for about half of the material we do. Uh, I have to copy the songs note for note. I mean, it's not even just the sounds. It's just, you know, the first process is to write down the actual parts. Uh, in in the early days where we would parody live bands you know those parts would uh, they were fairly organic and would change throughout the song and and i literally have and i still have all my old charts i literally have every note written out every single everything is written out for the entire song uh later on as we began to get into more uh programmed music dance and and hip-hop and rap stuff and we're parodying those things those tended to be really in just kind of four bar cycles and it would usually be a four-bar pattern. Again, I would have to write it out, but I would only have to write out a short bit and then just sort of work out the arrangement from there. Sometimes a part would be ducked out or, or muted or whatever. And But I mean, as far as the basic part, 
uh, that usually came pretty quickly. And then I just figured out the arrangement. Then I would have to work on sounds. That was another thing. But uh, they didn't they didn't teach me that back in 1965. That was actually one of the things that I had on my list that I wanted to get into is the difference between, you know, going back when you first started with Al, it was really a matter of learning the parts and the sounds that the artists were using were easy to decipher because there might be two or three different types of drum machines. You would listen to it, determine this is the sounds from this type of drum machine. So I know which machine they used and then you can program those sounds. Now, as technology has changed, now you're faced with a whole other vision of sonics that people use. People will create samples, they'll create their own sounds. And now you're looking at a situation where you don't know what they did in the first place. Um, one of the things that I was going to comment on is that a lot of times it's stated that there is not a lot of creativity in emulation, but the reality of the situation is in the job that you have, you have to be incredibly creative because it's not a matter of taking something that someone's already done and just emulating it. You have to deconstruct, analyze and recreate things, not closely, but exactly. And I believe it was probably easier in some of the early days than some of the things that you have to do now, because I'm sure there's situations where you will hear tracks that are presented to you and you think, I have no idea what that sound was, but I have to somehow figure out how to recreate that. Well, and that, yeah, I got very good at, at, uh, at what came to be called as sound design. And, uh, and I just, I, you don't learn that anywhere. You just have to figure it out. And you're right. I would hear stuff, you know, back in, back in the eighties, we would hear something and, oh, that's a Lynn or that's a, a Roland. And, you know, if you were really good, you know, the difference between a Roland 808 and a 929, a 909 and, you know, stuff like that. And, uh, but producers began creating, they began layering sounds. They began taking just odd sounds and making them into drum sounds. Uh, so a snare wasn't always even it didn't even start out as a snare. And I, I, as that time went on, I had to, and I had no idea what a lot of these sounds were. I mean, I knew if there was a Simmons kind of an effect on something, I mean, I knew certain basic sonic properties, but I didn't know what people did to make the sounds they made. And the only thing I could do was think to myself, well, what would I do to make that sound? What, what do I hear in that sound that? You know, I hear a little bit of a, you know, on that snare, I hear a little bit of a white noise. I hear a little bit of a knock. Maybe that's a rim click. Maybe it's a slow, you know, maybe that's a Lin, you know, rim click slowed down or something. I, you know, there, there was, I would just have to figure out what I would do to make the sound. And that usually worked. I usually got really, really, really close. And when those sounds were put in the track, uh, they sounded they sounded like the original record. And that was, uh, you know, if, if I can get 99% there, I'm doing pretty good at 98 percent is not good enough 99 is okay that's acceptable i also know you have exceptionally high standards for the work that you do you're incredibly committed to your craft and you happen to have a boss that has exceptionally high standards <laughs> in terms of al when when people look back at weird al's career they often look at it he's the silly parody guy i think what's really undervalued in the you know, the, the four decades of the work that he has done and that you have had a huge part of is the level of commitment and the high level of versatility that all of the musicians in the band have to maintain to not play the music, but to 
perfect the music. If you look at other people that are kind of doing little silly parodies of songs, they make fun of the song and it, and it turned it into a joke. Al and yourself and the band, you don't make fun of the music that you play. You treat the music with a high level of respect and commitment. Yes, you're parodying songs and it turns it into a, like a humor element, but it's done out of respect to the artist and the music. And I think that's one of the things that really has made this work so timeless. You can listen back to things that you did in the eighties and it's still timeless today because there is that high level of respect and commitment. So you're not making fun of the music. You are just presenting it in a different way. And ironically, because I have all of the albums and I've been a fan since I was a kid, I run and I still listen to them today, but I, ironically, my introduction to the music of today generally comes from the release of a new Weird Al Yankovic record. So I know the songs because I've heard them through what you guys have presented sometimes before I hear the pop songs on the radio. I might be at work and I'll hear music playing through the through the, the, the stereo. And I suddenly realized, hey, this sounds familiar. Why do I know this? And I know it because I actually know it as a Weird Al song before the actual original, which actually, in a lot of ways, makes me appreciate the pop music more because it got treated with such a high level of respect from from Al and the work that you guys have done. Uh, well, well, thanks. And we do, uh, we do have a high standard, and and it, we didn't we didn't learn that from Al. We just sort of all had that, and I think Al was lucky to have the four of us come together the way it did and that he got people that were on the same page as him as far as doing this stuff of course when he says you know we're we're uh you know doing a cover of the song and we want it to sound like that song we kind of know what the plan is and we all learned a lot over the years because uh, the music evolved and we were always a few steps behind whatever you know current pop music production there was you know and he would pick a song that was already you know th those producers are way ahead of where we were as musicians and we we had to learn that you know we we all learned sound design before it was such a thing you know um and and we do uh, the music is serious i mean what we do before the lyrics go on before the vocals go on a track i mean the music is is deadly seriously i mean it's it's that's important it's important that it sound like the original song and that applies to the original songs as well where there's not really if we're doing what's called a style parody where we want to sound like a B-52s, let's say, or Weezer, let's say, or, so, you know, somebody like that, where it's important that we have that vibe, you know, The Doors, Queen, you know, where we would do style parodies, you know, pastiche of, of you know, a, a stereotypical Doors kind of a song. Craigslist was one of those songs. And I had to, you know, for all of those songs, you know, I, I would, we would all have to get into those players' heads. And if Al had called in John Densmore to play drums on his doors sound alike original what would densmore do well that's what i had to do and it and it's partly just listening to you know well the song we're doing you know has some elements of this particular song by the doors and this song and this song you know just kind of get some of those vibes and i would hear the fills that densmore would do and try to do something that was reminiscent of that without just stealing those fills i mean that would be very simple uh and and I guess it would be appropriate. I don't know. Maybe only a drummer would notice. But I tried to put a little bit of myself in there. Myself as John Densmore, you know, playing a song that sounds like a Doors song by Al. And uh, and so that's where the creative process comes in as well. And I had to do that for uh, 
well, almost all of the originals sound like or have the vibe of a popular artist or one of Al's favorite bands or whatever it is. They also sound alike something, but we're not really copying something exactly. So we have a little bit of freedom and we have a little bit of creativity. But again, on the parodies, the the music is is has got to be dead on. I mean, that's the goal is to make it dead on. And we got better with each album. And I dare say that our last album, Mandatory Fun, uh, is is our best performed album. I mean, we just, you know, that's that, that's the ultimate. All of, that's one of those albums where all of the originals are played live. And all of the parodies happen to be uh, programmed. That's just it. Just happened to work out that way. And then there's a polka medley as well, which of course is played live. But and and interestingly, on all of the songs that were programmed on the five programmed parodies, those were done completely by me and either Steve J on bass, who did some keyboard stuff, or Jim West on keyboards, uh, who's who's very good at sound design. Uh, and I always did the drums and percussion, and it was always you know, one or the other of them and me, and we did all of the music for those things, uh, for the parodies on there. So we had gotten that good where, uh, where we could just, you know, we didn't even need a whole band. It was just a couple of us would do it. And, uh, very, very proud of that album in particular. I mean, and we worked, we worked hard again, parts, parts are one thing, but the sounds are another and the sounds really take a lot of time. As I said earlier, because my introduction to a lot of the current pop music actually originated through Weird Al's music first, and then I got exposed to the songs that they reflected upon, um, I'm actually finding that the sonic production is better on Weird Al's record than on some of the other ones. So when I compare them side by side, it almost sounds like they're trying to parody you, but they didn't quite get the production right. And and it's and it's funny. And there, so it's something that I just I'm, I find really interesting. And I think one of the things that I had discovered um, not that long ago, I was I was on YouTube and I was watching some documentaries, and I came across a documentary. I can't remember for what record it was, but it was kind of an in the studio documentary about one of the makings of one of Al's records. And I remember realizing how incredibly involved Al is in this whole process. It's not a matter of the band comes in, does what they're told, and the band leaves and they leave everything up to someone else. It's amazing how extensively involved everyone is and it made me appreciate all the work that much more now on that note the first five studio albums and then the soundtrack to the movie uhf were all produced by renowned guitar player uh, rick derringer after that the production responsibilities was now taken over by al what was it like working with Rick Derringer and how has the whole experience changed since Al has now become the producer for all of the records since the sixth one? Well, uh, you know, we, we learned a lot from Rick, you know, Al certainly learned a lot, uh, but Rick quickly learned that Al wanted things a certain way and, you know, knew what the goal was on the same page as Al knew what the goal was. Uh, so it's not necessarily that Al was able to get more out of us than Rick was or vice versa. We just, you know, it was just a natural transition. Actually, Rick's contract was up after the sixth album. Um, and, and it was a natural transition for Al to become the producer because he was already pretty hands-on on everything. He already, uh, uh, you know, he knew what he wanted and he knew we could all get it. And I don't want to say we didn't need Rick. I mean, we, again, we certainly learned a lot from Rick and he added a lot of credibility to us at a time when, 
uh, you know, Al would have just been regarded as another funny artist with an album or two that would have been the end of it. The fact that Rick was on board was pretty cool. Uh, but when Al took over, uh, I I, uh, I don't know that things got, I, things were already pretty much on a really good track. I don't know that they got any better or that they changed because Rick was out of the picture. Uh, you know, Al, we already knew what we were supposed to do. And Al was now officially in charge. Uh, as as opposed to just kind of, you know, you know, hey, Rick, this is what I want. You know, I mean, it was always Al telling Rick what Al wanted rather than Rick overseeing an entire like a producer will often have, you know, a, an effect on a band They, you know, a band will have a certain sound because of the producer sometimes. And that was uh, well, we had on each album, we had 11 or 12 different sounds. I mean, it wasn't possible to really apply one production standard to everything. You know, we were doing a lot of different a lot of different productions. But uh uh, but but the transition was a very easy one, and and Al has been a great producer, and uh, and and again we're we've always been on board with the way he does things and with what the job is, which is we're parodying this song, uh, we're going to make a slight arrangement change, we are going to make a key change, maybe maybe the tempo will be two beats a minute faster, whatever it is, and then go, you know, you guys do what you do, and uh, and that's it. And to be honest, and not that Al can't play he certainly can but as far as uh sequenced parts and keyboards and stuff like that he generally he didn't do a lot of that now as opposed to on this last album where on all the parodies he wasn't he didn't perform on any of them at all other than to sing of course uh and on all of the originals where there was a keyboard he played all of the keyboard parts piano uh you know on on uh uh, Jackson Park Express, the Cat Stevens sounding thing. That's all him on the piano. That's not even our own piano player. I mean, that's that's Al uh, doing all the stuff. I mean, this was literally the four of us did this entire album, and uh, and again, I, I think it's I think it's our best one. But he was he was very adept. Again, he always from the start. He always uh, you know when we would do demos and stuff, he was very particular about stuff stuff. Uh, persnickety, I, I would say. And uh, and that just carried on as the technology allowed him to and and the rest of us to employ his wishes. You know, it became easier and easier. Uh, you know, to do that again, we had to learn. But as we learned, it's like, oh, okay, well, that's you know, we're only one step behind. You know, the music world now, and uh, you know, and when we need to learn something new on the next album, we'll learn that as well as as we do. Again, each album had been a learning experience, really, for all of us, and uh, which has been great. I mean, I've really learned a lot. Again, this this sound design thing uh, is has been extremely valuable, even if it really mostly just applies to my work with Al. You know, it's much better than having to call in someone else uh, to do that. You know, I just I always want to be responsible for all of the drum and percussion sounds uh, on each record. And I have been. Yeah. And that's one of the things that I was going to comment on, because in the 80s one of the things that was kind of the bane of many drummers existence was the advent of drum machines because everyone thought all my work is going to be taken away and i'm going to be replaced with the machine where you took the approach of someone has to program this stuff i'm the drummer in the band i want to i don't care if i can't play on the song i want to be the one that still provides the drum track for it. that means I'm going to program it, then I would rather do that than have someone else do that. And I think by embracing that technology and that approach, it's something that has really made you stand out in this industry as someone who is incredibly versatile for these sorts of things. Oh, uh, well, thanks. Yeah, I, I, I saw that coming. So I bought a machine. Yeah. 
It's it's very simple. Now machines then uh, they 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 sounded kind of stiff. I mean, you didn't really you were you were at the mercy of of the uh, sequencing software in the machine, and machines had different feels. I mean, they absolutely could you know had, had some of them were a little laid back a little bit stiff uh, my first machine was a yamaha rx11 and it was 795 dollars, which was the list price and this was in 1985 and you paid 795 dollars. i mean that was there were no discounts you wanted a machine you paid for the machine and uh and it, it had some uh, uh kick and snare sounds that were very lin like so it was perfect for songs like Dare to be Stupid, mm -hmm. which was uh, uh, basically, a, a, well, it was the Lindrum sounds was the idea. and uh, But it had some other cool sounds, a little bit of percussion. And uh, that machine served me pretty well. Act, literal, well, actually, a couple of years later, I bought an Alesis, an HR-16, which was a budget machine. I think it was like $350 or $298 or something. And it... Uh, it allowed you to tune the samples a little bit. Now, again, it was a very uh, elementary machine. A lot of the Alesis products were very adventurous and very easy to use. But sonically, in those days, they weren't quite there. I mean, for drum sounds, it really wasn't that critical. Cymbal sounds, maybe it was. But this was a pretty cool machine and allowed me to do a lot of things. The one problem with this machine is it ran like 0.3 beats per minute slow. Or or, may, or maybe it was a little bit fast. It wasn't absolutely on the nose. And the way we got around that eventually is we we uh, ran it, we synced it with uh, a, a Simpty track, which basically generated the the pulse that then ran the machine as opposed to, you know, uh, relying on the machine's uh, brain. But that that allowed me, and it was also very. It was a much simpler machine to program. I spent four hours one night learning to program one bar on that Yamaha, you know. And I, once I learned it, it was like, oh, okay, I guess that's not that difficult. Uh, the Alesis was much simpler. Uh, I got it. It wasn't too much later that I got into uh, a sampler, and uh, my first sampler was an Akai, and I think it was an S nine hundred, which was a very popular sampler with producers in those days. Didn't have a lot of RAM. They would often line up six or eight of them just to get enough, you know, different sound, you know, things coming out of them because one machine wouldn't do it all. So they just, they lined them up. They, they were not cheap machines. And uh, I got that and ran that with uh, my Alesis originally, which again, uh, you know, was was a, a tiny bit off, you know, code uh, time-wise, but, you know, close enough, close enough. And then uh, not long after that, I got into... Uh, a, a Kurzweil machine. I think by the early nineties, maybe 93, I'd gotten a Kurzweil K2000 and it was a rack sampler. So it was the brains of their big keyboard just without the keyboard and it fit into a rack. And that was a serious learning curve because those kind of things that wasn't made for a drummer that was made for a keyboard player that just, you know, wanted the brains of a Kurzweil and maybe a different keyboard or something. Uh, so I had to learn all of the things that did in order to put, and that was a, a steep learning curve, in order to put in the sounds I wanted. And by this time, I was beginning to create my own samples and, and stuff like that. And uh, I was also beginning to learn MIDI programming, and which this would handle a MIDI file. You could actually program right in the machine. Uh, but, but I would program a MIDI file uh, in, uh, I actually used Pro Tools, an early version of Pro Tools, which, you know, nobody would use Pro Tools for MIDI, you know, just doing MIDI and Pro Tools. But I would create sequences in Pro Tools. I found it very easy. 
and uh, load that file into the Kurzweil and tell it which you know which MIDI note played which sample, and it was good to go. And I could just press go, and the machine did the whole thing. And uh, and then eventually, uh, well, uh, went through all sorts of different permutations of of pads and and sample this and sample that, and eventually came down from having to run a rack sampler actually I had two of them because you needed a backup you know I had a cat pad I had a pedal so I could play tambourines and claps on the backbeat and stuff like that and then eventually I went the other direction and simplified it and went out and got one of these all-in-one pads got a, a Roland pad and uh, which again does way more than I needed to do I just need to hit a pad and generate a sample I don't need to use it for sampling I don't need to to sequence things on there I don't need to loop stuff I just I want to hit a pad or step on a foot pedal and have a sound come out and that's what it did. And it's one unit as opposed to all this other stuff, you know, with all those things. So, you know, in, in some ways I've simplified that end of it. Uh, sound design is still uh, a thing. When we go into the studio, I still uh, actually I generate actual tracks to uh, take into the studio. Actually, these days you just email them. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, there's you go into the studio if you want to sort of hear it all together. But it's not absolutely necessary. I mean, I didn't have to go into the studio for any of the parodies on the last album. Uh, I did just because I wanted to hear it and, you know, because Al would buy lunch. Yeah. <laughs> but <laughs> but apart from that, uh, you know, every, we, we can pretty much all do everything, you know, at our desks at home, you know, on a laptop. Uh, you know, some people on an iPad even, I suppose. And, uh, you know, the, the whole technology thing, you know, I embraced it, you know, to get back to the original thing was, you know, when machines started becoming a deal, I bought a machine, you know, and I never, I, I never really let go of that, you know, and I use it when I should, mm -hmm. when the, the music demands it. And I don't, when I don't, you know, it's, it's, uh, you know, you can, you can be a drummer and, and do both, you know, you can be a programmer, you know, I, I don't think just doing one or the other is, is uh, such a beneficial thing. Because uh, if you only, let's say you only can program drums and you don't know how to sit down and play a drum set, uh, you're, you're limited by that. Just like if you refuse to learn technology and you just play a drum set, you're missing out on on uh, some work as well and, and missing out on some growth, I think. And uh, I was, you know, I mean, looking back, I'm very glad to have had that growth. And that's all thanks to Al. I mean, if he had not presented the songs to us that we needed to step up and, and learn what was going on and duplicate it, you know, he wasn't there to help us. Mm -hmm. He didn't say, if you have trouble, let me know. It's like, you know, uh, you guys go do what you do. And, and you know, I need it by Thursday, you know, kind of a thing. And we just, we did it. And if we didn't know how to do it, we learned how to do it. And we learned pretty good. We learned, uh, we learned very well how to do all that stuff, I think. So sonically, what are some of the biggest challenges that you encountered in terms of having to create some of these sounds and how did you overcome those challenges? Well, one, one song I cite, and this was, uh, 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 trapped in the drive through, which was a parody, I believe of confessions part two or part, whatever it was. And, and, uh, again, this is one of those, it was essentially, uh, there were some different sections, but I mean, it was essentially like a four bar loop and this section would have maybe a slightly different four bar loop. And there were a lot of sounds in that. It didn't take long to get the parts and the arrangement together. I always write out the actual parts, the, the rhythms and the arrangement. So I know what I'm doing. I know what sections I need to create. And then I will start thinking about what sounds go with those parts. Okay. On the snare line, the snare is always going to be this. And then I'll work on that sound and, you know, work on the, the bass drum sound toms percussion whatever it is well trapped in the drive-through had a fair amount of sounds 
uh, it had uh interestingly there was a sound in there like like sort of a uh, of like a, a a drop a droplet sound like a, a raindrop a, a, a cheek pop kind of a sound i don't know if i can do it here but it was it was kind of like you know kind of yeah mm-hmm. sort of like that but but a little wetter and i i sat in front of a microphone and did a whole bunch of those you know d- did that for like five minutes you know and tried to to make that sound and i think i got one of them in there just now and and i used that and that that happened that alternated with like finger snaps and stuff and that throughout most of the song well i found out much later that i think it was just a standard sound sound off a computer like a microsoft you know media sound and there was just one in there i said that's the sound that's what i worked so hard on was i could have if i had any idea uh but that wasn't that was hardly the only issue there were a whole lot of sounds i i worked about about 30 hours on the you know dozen sounds in that song and just to get them exactly right and and i did i mean i really i'm very proud of that one i mean really you know a lot of work went into that for me of course once you get into the studio you just press a button and it's just that's it yeah it goes and and you're done and one take uh but uh and there, there was another song you know i i never i never asked for help from anyone you know i probably I'm sure I could have reached out to some of the producers and some of the people in in the groups whose songs were parodying for sounds. So there was there was one time that I reached out. Uh, this was we were doing a parody of uh, Imagine Dragons Reactive Radioactive. Sorry, we were doing a parody of Imagine Dragons Radioactive called Inactive about somebody who's lazy just sitting on a couch. And I'd gotten, uh, you know, I I'd gotten all the sounds, and I I you know, there's a certain there's a snare sound in there, and it it had like kind of a, a kind of a reverse filter kind of a sweep leading up to it and then there was a little bit of a of a slap back on it there was sort of a little bit of a gap there was there was something going on and i couldn't quite pick it out in the song and i tried a few things and i got close you know but again i i like i like to be a lot closer than just close you know i don't want to be 98% i want to be 99% or 100% but 98%'s not good enough and and i was probably 90% on this and I wasn't basically and, and you know what it probably would have worked it probably would have been fine I don't think anybody would have said anything but I would have known I did know and I had uh uh written to uh the drummer in the band I, I got his email address and wrote to him and I asked him and I explained what we were doing and I said you know I never do this but is there any can you you know and I know you know I don't know if you were involved in the programming of the song or not but is there any way can you help me on this? Can you give me some direction on it? And like a couple of weeks went by and I hadn't heard and it was getting time to start turning in the the tracks, you know, turning in our work so Al could go in the studio with it. And and I got up, I thought, you know what, I'm just, I'm going to have to just use one of those sounds and, and uh, you know, I'll, I'll maybe try and tweak it once more, but I'm just going to have to go. I haven't heard back. I'm just, I'm on my own, obviously. And I got back and I checked my email and he had gotten back to me the guitar player in the band had sent me a stem of the snare in there and and in listening to it well one i you know that was really cool to be able to do that and have the actual sound because that's a recognizable sound but two in listening to it i never would have got that together i never would have it's like well i I didn't hear this i couldn't hear that because it's obscured by other stuff going on in the song and i never would have got it a hundred percent never ever ever so that's the one time i asked for help got it and and uh, when i sent in 
the snare part, I said, this, this is the snare. Do not EQ it. Don't compress it. This is, this is the snare from the song. So don't mess with it. And, uh, and they didn't, you know, they, they got it. And that, you know, and I listened to that. It's like, oh, that's, I'm, you know, I'm so glad that worked out, but that's the only time I felt the need to do that. And, you know, again, I, I, it, I'm sure whatever I had cooked up would have been fine, but that's not good enough. That's not one. That's not really the way Al works, but more than that, that's not the way I work. And, and I wanted to be right for me, you know, as well as for Al, I mean, you know, both of our reputations are online. I don't want another producer to come along and tell Al, you know, as the producer and the artist, you know, Hey, you're, you know, you didn't get that sound right. You know, your drummer didn't know what he's doing. I don't want other drummers to come up to me and said, did you not listen to the Imagine Dragon song? You didn't get that right. You know? And I knew I didn't get it right. And that's why I asked for it. So I, I'm very grateful for that. But that was that was one time. And and I'm very proud that that's the only time I, I really felt a need to do that. Which is a, a testament to your, like I said, dedication and commitment to maintaining such a high level of your craft. Now, as a fan, one of the highlights of Al's almost, almost I think with the exception of two albums, is his polka medleys which I think are complete genius because it's not a parody. It's not a joke. It's literally a nod or a tribute to respect to the music of what's current at that time rearranged as a polka. And that's one of the things that I love about it. As I said earlier, sometimes my introduction to the music of today is actually through the music of Weird Al. And sometimes it comes through the polkas. I'll be at the mall. I'll hear the music playing through the mall. I'm like, I know this. Why do I know this? I'm like, Weird Al polka. So that's how I learn a lot of this stuff. But they're so brilliantly organized. And now I know Al is incredibly meticulous, this stuff. And when he presents the polkas, is it something that the band arranges or does he already come with a plan and say, this is how everything is going to be. Let's execute it. Well, that's, that's how he does that for the polkas and for his originals as well. Uh, I think, I think starting with the second, maybe the third album, but ever since, and for all of the polka medleys, he does his own demo of it. Now, again, it's, it's a uh, very raw uh, it's it's accordion based, or at least it was in the beginning. Later on, he actually began sequencing. You know, he would present us with a a pretty good roadmap of what he wanted us to do. So so it's his arrangement all the way on uh, on all of those things uh, from the start. Now at that point, once we hear what he wants to do, then we go in as a band with with him and uh, rehearse it live as a band. Maybe tweak a few things. Maybe he'll present a medley and and. Uh, you know, it won't be 100% complete. There'll be something missing, but he knows we know what to fill in. But we'll sit down as a band and go over that, you know, before going into the studio. And so by the time we get in the studio, we've actually already massaged it. You know, he he knows what he wants. We know what he wants. He knows we know what he wants. And at that point, then we can go and record it with really without having to, to run it down in the studio. Uh, we'll go in and just, uh, you know, at the beginning of the day, just to get sounds and get a balance you know, we'll go over whatever the first song is that day. And then for the rest of them, it's like, okay, we ready to do the polka medley. Yep. And we just, okay, take one and we just do it. We don't have to run through it. We're just, we're ready to go. Uh, so yeah, he absolutely, you know, he, he tells us right up front, you know, exactly what we're, you know, what he wants and, uh, you know, in some cases what we're doing and, uh, and we do that. So yeah, he's, he's the arrangement the whole way. I don't know if there were ever any times that we, 
threw something in where he, you know, where he asked us, you know, well, what do you think should be here? Because the whole polka thing is his deal. Now, in the original songs, he will occasionally ask us, you know, sometimes he has something specific he wants. Sometimes he'll say, okay, uh, I need you to do what that guitar player would do. You know, if if he was coming in to do, you know, I need you on the Craigslist to do what John Densmore would do if he was doing the session. You know, that's obvious. I, I understand that. Uh, so we we have a little bit of freedom in those areas. But Polka Medley specifically, that's Al 100% from start to finish. One of the things that I was going to ask, but you more or less already answered this question is, are the for the Polka Medleys, are they spliced together? And you already said, no, you play it straight through. Yep, Absolutely. Um, and and I think that's brilliant. And I know you you play the polka medleys live, so it's not a matter of it's one of those things that's a studio trick. You guys pulled this off flawlessly live. And to me, it's it's just one of the joys of of all of Al's records. I think at some point I might just put them all together on a playlist because I um because they just I, I just I love the brilliance of how all of these things are are put together. Oh well, thank you. You know what? They're they're uh there have only been a couple of times where we've sort of spliced things together where we've, you know, where we've stopped and then, uh, you know, and then, and then punched in, or actually there's one song that we did in sections and then put it all together. Now I will say that, that, uh, I remember having to stop and start a few times on Albuquerque, which is a pretty brisk song. And it's like 11 minutes or 12 minutes long. When we did that in the studio, uh, there's a couple of breaks in it, but not really. We did actually, invent i think some breaks so i could catch my breath and then we would punch back in so it sounded like all one thing but there was one song that we actually really did do in i think like 18 sections and and it was then put together as if it was one song and uh i think i think you know genius in france yeah, that's the, the one the frank zappa style um original yeah. that was one and that had to be done that way because uh, there was just no way to, uh, we just, we couldn't make some of the hairpin turns sonically or instrumentally uh, that that song required. And uh, which is interesting because we did, we did a, a band demo of that, that we did play all the way through. But again, it didn't sound anything like the final product. The thing that's funny and well, what what's cool is, is that it all got put together. You would probably, you could probably guess where a lot of the cuts were you know, just, just by hearing it, but not because, oh, I heard a little glitch. There were no glitches. There's one part and, and I could have sworn we, uh, we had done it in different sections, but I went back and I looked at the music because I had all the music separated out into all the different sections. And we actually made one of those turns live. We didn't, it wasn't a cut. And, and, uh, I was sort of proud of that one. I forget which one it is, but in listening to it down and then rereading the stuff, it's like, oh, that wasn't, that wasn't an edit that we played that. We played that one, but that was a good one. And that took a while. We thought that was going to take a long time to do simply because of the uh, intricacy of the song, uh, you know, even taking out some of those hairpin turns, you know, just the fact that it would take time to record so many different sections and listen to them down, make sure they were right, and then move on. Uh, we actually got that whole thing done in about three hours, uh, which uh, was a surprise to Al because he had booked the whole day just for that song. And we wrapped it up like around... 1 p.m. or something. He says, oh, I, I guess we can move on to tomorrow's stuff now. So we might have actually saved him a little bit of money on that one. I think we were able to to shave a day off the, the you know, the time in the studio. But that's one of those ones that we did have to do that. And that was just out of necessity. That's also why 
it would be extremely difficult to do that song live and and do it any justice. I mean, there's certain songs that we've talked about. Uh, Hardware Store is one of those songs vocally that just is not, it just can't be done live because it wasn't done live in the studio that way. You know, that was the, the, the lyrics, especially in the middle section, were all put together. And Al just doesn't sing it that way. And there was some discussion, well, we can just change the arrangement so that we can actually sing the song and the lyrics can be understood, but it's not going to sound the same. You know, but therefore, what's the point of doing it? And there was no way we could do that, you know, to Genius in France. You can't not do it just like that, you know, and and have it be the same song. So the option was, unfortunately, to not do that. That's one of a handful of songs we just can't or or won't play live without making some kind of a drastic change to it and and making it probably less enjoyable. I mean, the beauty of hardware stores is the franticness, you know, is the speed. And if you don't do it that way, it's not it's not as enjoyable. The thing too about Genius in France, unlike almost all of the other things in the repertoire is that when you do a song, you have to play in the style of the drummer and that song in genius in France, you actually play in the styles of multiple drummers mm. from Frank Zappa's ear, particularly leaning more towards the seventies period of Frank Zappa's music. But in that time, there's probably five or six drummers that were all involved in that particular style. And you really have to kind of, you know, play tribute to them, mold them all together to kind of create this one piece. And so I, I think it's an exceptional piece of work. Uh, well, thanks. Well, the, the two drummers I focused on and are probably the most recognizable part-wise, you know, to other drummers is uh, there's a, a little bit of, and it's, although it's not exactly the correct era, but there's a little bit of Terry Bozio in there. Mm -hmm. uh, some of the fills are very, are, are very uh, Terry. And then some of the other beats are, are very, Ralph Humphrey, the late Ralph Humphrey, uh, and, and, you know, from the, uh, 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 I'm trying, I'm trying to think, uh, there was, he was on the apostrophe album and then there was one other album, geez, I can't, with zombie wolf and, and all those, I can't was think it, of the name of the, was Chester Thompson. No, uh, before no. Chester, okay. uh, uh, oh man. I can't think of it. A zombie Wolf. There was uh, Montana was on it, uh, and that was all Ralph playing on that. And those were some of the beats uh, that I nabbed, you know. And, and again, I don't play them as smoothly as Ralph did, but uh, that's kind of where I got, you know. And and the the drummers and the parts, the parts I chose were governed by the parts that Al submitted. There were so many different Zappa sounding themes going on throughout there that each theme required its own kind of drum part. But a lot of that, a lot of that was the, the early seventies. One size fits all was the album. Okay. Uh, and, uh, uh, and, uh, so a lot of the, a lot of the sort of uh, beats in there were, were Ralph from that era. And then there's some other fills and some other things going on that were very kind of Terry Bozio and actually not even from Zappa, but from missing persons you know, from just some more straight ahead drumming on his part, but always, you know, and, and I was, uh, you know, from the late sixties, when I first discovered Zappa, uh, you know, I, I was just, I was a huge fan and, uh, and, and stayed a very serious fan through about the mid eighties. And I kind of, after a thing fish, I think I kind of lost track of, of him. And there were some albums in between that were pretty self-indulgent and, and maybe not as accessible and, and I've got them all, but I can't say that I listened to them much. But there were a number of albums that I would listen to as a kid all the way through. Roxy and Elsewhere, One Size Fits All, Apostrophe, 
uh, uh, we're only in it for the money, uh, you know, stuff like that. Some of the stuff on hot rats, some of the stuff on lumpy gravy, some of the stuff on freak out. These were all like, like the, uh, you know, the, the soundtrack to my wannabe drummer. You know, I, I, that was my goal was to be able to play those kind of things. The problem is by the time I learned how to play that stuff, he had already, he was already like three drummers ahead of me. And, and, you know, they were already doing, you know, Vinny and, and some of those guys, you know, and Chester came in and did stuff and they were just, you know, uh, Chad Wackerman stuff. They, they would come through and just, you know, far ahead of where, where I ever could have been. So, I mean, at this point, I probably could go back and have played with Zappa in 1969. <laughs> and that's, you know, uh, another one of my favorite Zappa's drummers was Ainsley Dunbar, a mm -hmm. uh, big fan of his work. And, uh, you know, I, uh, just, but but a fan of Zappa, not just because of the drummers, but I did glean a lot of my uh, uh, a lot of a lot of my uh, drumming desires from what you know. That was what I aspired to do: is to be able to play at that level, and uh, and I can, except it's from fifty years ago. Mm -hmm. I remember after college, I spent a lot of time working in a cover band, just kind of playing the bar circuit. And we were at the time we were all going through our Frank Zappa stage, and so we had three or four Frank Zappa songs that we had learned to play for fun, but bars never wanted to hear bands play Frank Zappa songs. They always mm -hmm. wanted to hear you play the songs that the, the bar would want. And and one of the bands that we also covered a lot was the Tragically Hip, who was one of Canada's oh. sort of biggest bands. And they were known for their live shows by going on these little tangents. So what we would do is we would, we were told you're not allowed to play Frank Zappa songs, we would go on and we would play a really big tragically hip song that often is known for a long live um kind of extended kind of um explore you know you know exploration sort of in the middle and we would play the song and when we get to the middle section we would fit an entire frank zappa song into the middle of it <laughs> and then segue back into the tragically hip song and the audience loved it everyone loved it because they didn't know so we would still play it anyway we would just hide it amongst the other music which kind of fit in so it's sometimes just it's just kind of approach so people can often be predetermined about how certain things you don't want to hear but in the end it still kind of has value so it's all just yeah. in terms of how it's presented and a lot of that too is it's like with al stuff some people may laugh at some of the songs that you play but when you really listen to it you realize how brilliantly written a lot of these songs were in the first place. Oh, thank you. Another thing that I, I've heard the story, but I was still curious because I'm a huge Mark Knopfler fan, huge Dire Straits fan. And I know that on UHF, you did a cover of Money for, or a parody of Money for Nothing done to the Beverly Hillbillies. And I know Al at some point, or what I heard is that he'd reached out to Mark Knopfler for his approval, but Mark Knopfler had said that you can, but he wanted to play guitar on it. So I was curious if had I heard that story correctly. That's uh, yeah, that's that's true, and uh, and not well. Two things happened. Well, one, yeah, basically that was sent off. Now we had already cut the the uh, track, and uh, our guitar player had put the guitar on. Now again, even at this point, you're even in nineteen, uh, you know, eighty eight, eighty nine when we cut that, uh, we, uh, uh, you know, the goal was to sound like the original, and our guitar player did a very very nice mark knopfler part everything you know very fastidious you know one of those 99 there kind of things and uh but when when mark said oh that's that's great you know you want you want me to you know i'll, I'll play guitar on it if, if you'd like and al's like oh, uh, yeah sure you know and basically sent sent the the you know a, a tape off 
to uh, England. And uh, Mark played guitar. Guy Fletcher, uh, Dire Straits keyboard player, uh, who still works with Mark, by the way, uh, had played uh, keyboards on there, put the keyboards on. You know, and then they sent back their parts, and we integrated it with ours. Well, fortunately, we got Mark to play on there. Unfortunately, by 1989, his, you know, in the, in the five or six years since he had cut money for nothing and you know been massaging it out on the road and you know little slight little guitar changes the part wasn't quite there it wasn't quite what it was but you can't say it's wrong because it's mark but it wasn't it wasn't the part that he played on his own record way back and i've got a comparison of our our guitar players part because i have a recording of everything we've done and so i've still got that part that didn't get used and play that against mark mark's part and then play them both against the original money for nothing and see who's right and and how far off and and uh, neither of them were actually 100% on the original but Jim our guy Jim West who's from Toronto by the way uh was uh he he was almost dead on it and Mark was was uh not quite on it <laughs> he and he and the part that he played was great but it wasn't the original part. And what's Al going to say? It's like, no, you you didn't do it right. You know, you're telling the guy that wrote the part that he didn't do it right. You can't, you can't do that. So we we went with that, and that's one of those things where it was so cool to have him on there. But uh, he, you know, he he must have known that the goal was to play it like that. But again, it's his song. You're gonna, you can't, you can't tell. And an- another sort of a, a connection to Mark is uh, my brother had been working with Mark Knopfler since 1994. And I, I, ha- I have a lot of drum sets. And if, if anyone makes the mistake of saying, you know, oh, my, my niece is, you know, is thinking my nephew's thinking about taking drum lessons. What do you suggest? I said, I'll, I'll send him a drum set, you know, so I can get him out of the house, get him out of storage. So at some point, uh, my, my brother had mentioned that about one of his kids. I said, I'll, I'll send you a drum set. So I sent him the drum set that was used on money for on our money for nothing to record that. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and he's got that in the basement and then come to find out, you know, a few years later, he hooks up with Mark Knopfler. It's like, oh, well, how cool. (laughs) So he's got, so there's sort of a, you know, two or three degrees of Mark Knopfler going on there between my brother and Al and that drum set and our recording and all the other stuff. So, so there. As I've been a Mark Knopfler fan for decades, and I've seen him live on many of occasions, I found a great amount of joy when I discovered the connection to the fact that his touring guitar player is actually your brother. So I just thought that was just so cool. And I just kind of loved the connection because it isn't a necessarily obvious connection, but well, no, something true. that I... True. I'm sorry. And, and, but also not just touring, but recording as well. Uh, you know, Mark, uh, Mark flies a couple of guys out from Nashville to uh, London and, and they'll spend a couple of weeks and record in Mark's studio and, and, uh, you know, work on the new albums. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know if, uh, it's a big giant secret, but, uh, they have done some recording recently. So, uh, who knows when that stuff will surface. They did some recordings, I think maybe late 2022, something like that. And, uh, not sure what that holds as far as actual releases or future tours, but uh, Mark is certainly still playing and still using my brother, so which is very cool. You've been listening to the Drummer's Pathway Podcast. Please share and subscribe to get the word out, and let's keep the discussion going. 
Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.